Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with a very special edition of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's talk is, uh, today's discussion, rather, is about a very unusual topic and one of those topics that's more fun than anything uh, and also very important, I would add. Uh, We are talking about beer in ancient Mesopotamia. And we are going to be discussing it as a product, in a sense, of uh, transitions in in human adaptation, in domestication, in the movement from <clears throat> from village life on village life and complex societies onward, and of course, as um, with any other element related to food production and consumption and distribution, beer is a major component of the diets and uh, not just for sustenance but also clearly for recreation and we're going to be talking about that topic in uh, as it evolved in ancient Mesopotamia during the third millennium BC which was a period of major major overhauls in complex societies in the Near East and elsewhere. Uh, my guest today who is doing work on uh, Mesopotamian beer is Mr. Tate Paulette, who is an archaeologist specializing in Mesopotamia and the ancient Near East. His research revolves around themes of risk, power, and inequality, with a particular focus on agriculture, practices, human environmental dynamics, and what's known as gastropolitics, and that's what we're going to be getting into to some degree. As an undergraduate, he studied archaeology at the University of Edinburgh, and he is now a PhD candidate in the Department of Near Eastern Languages. Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. His doctoral dissertation is a study of grain storage practices in the early Bronze Age um, of Mesopotamia. He's conducted archaeological fieldwork in Syria, Egypt, Turkey, Cyprus, Scotland, and the United States. His current research also includes an effort to model the growth and collapse of cities in Mesopotamia using agent, agent-based model uh, 
modeling and computer simulations and ex and an an examination of early administrative devices using CT technology and he is attempting to recreate the process associated with the production and presumably will also provide some information on the consumption of Sumerian beer. Uh, welcome to the program, Mr. Paulette. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's get started and give us a little bit of background on uh, Mesopotamia and the area that you're actually going to focus on, where the beer was found and how you got into the type of project that you did from an archaeological perspective. All right. Well, we're, so we're talking about southern Mesopotamia, um, really, which is uh, modern uh, southern Iraq from about Baghdad south, so the area watered by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, and for our project, we're basically talking about the period from about 3200 B.C. down to about 1600 B.C. That's from uh, the end of the late Chalcolithic period down through the Middle Bronze Age. Um, and really, the, the best evidence for beer comes from cuneiform documents, um, which appear in Mesopotamia starting at about 3200 B.C. And at that point... When you get the first documents, already beer is there all over the place, um, and, it's, and it stays there in the documentation for thousands of years. Archaeologically, it's much more difficult. Um, we really have a problem recognizing the archaeological evidence for beer in Mesopotamia during this period and in much earlier periods. So let me let me ask you that. Let's let's go back to that. You say the cuneiform records have a tremendous amount of information on beer, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's mentioned, and then yet the archaeological record has very little. Is it because it's not it's not possible to recognize it? Preservation is bad. What can you tell us about that? Well, we don't have the kind of residue analysis, for instance, that's been um, making strides in other parts of the world. There's a little bit from this region, but um, basically from southern Mesopotamia, there's basically nothing. So we don't have this kind of material where you have a little bit of residue left on the inside of a pot, and you can um, search for the chemical fingerprints of, for instance, beer or wine, um, which is really, of course, the best way to say you know, beer was actually being produced or consumed in this particular space. Um, so I think uh, as excavation picks up in Iraq over the coming years, we'll probably start to see more of that, and that would be great. Um, but uh, <clears throat> as it is, I think I think it really is a problem of recognition. Presumably, uh, in a lot of the areas that have been excavated already, um, beer was there. We really just don't know how to recognize it without this kind of residue analysis at the moment. And um, so a colleague, Mike Fisher, and I, um, that was kind of how we got into this particular project, is that we had been starting to work on this topic of archaeological invisibility of beer. So we'd given a few conference papers about this, just trying to start thinking through the problems. And so um, we basically heard that this project was starting at the Oriental Institute, and um, we wanted to be a part of it. Because uh, I think that this is at least one way of starting to to move towards recognizing um, spaces where beer was being produced, for instance. Why don't you give us a little bit of background information in terms of the general archaeology of beer and recognition of beer? When was it uh, actually documented initially in the archaeological record? Who identified it now? How was that done? 
Well, I mean, as far as I know, um, the earliest clear evidence for barley-based beer does actually come from this region, um, which is uh, the site of Godin Tepe in western Iran, which was um, studied by uh, Patrick McGovern, who's done a lot of work in various parts of the world with um, residue analysis of various kinds. And um, this site is basically a, an outpost from southern Mesopotamia, kind of a little fort or something like that. And there was a jar with uh, residues inside that uh, contained um, calcium oxalate, which is known as beer stone, basically a sort of something that's left over in modern fermenters and things. Uh, and it was recognized chemically, or was it recognized through the microscope? How was it originally recognized? Chemically. Um, I don't have in front of me exactly what kinds of analyses were done on it, but... Um, yeah, I mean it was also visible, but um, yeah. Yeah, but that and, and that's as if I recall correctly, that's something that occurred what about ten, fifteen years ago, or was it a little more than that? I think you're right. It might have been slightly more than that, but I'm not sure. Sometime in the '90s, I think. Oh. Okay, so f t taking that as sort of as a benchmark from that point onward, I guess it was uh, it was something that rather than just discovering, you now knew knew what to look for. And so, were there a, n a number of other places where it had been identified in addition to Western Iran? Well, yes, I mean, and later in time, um, in various sure. parts of the world, and I mean, a lot of the beverages that they've been identifying, I think, are often mixed. You know, they'll have they'll be barley, but also be grapes involved. And so you get different kinds of fermentation going on or different kinds of sugary substances being used together. Um, I don't know what the next earliest beer is off the top of my head. Um, but this one dates to about, uh, say you're saying about 3000 BC, third millennium. Um, a little earlier, that, maybe 30. A little earlier. Okay, so uh, I would say like early bronze, terminal calcolithic, something like that, yeah. right? Yeah, late, okay. late calcolithic. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so pushing forward, then tell us about your project and tell us how you got involved in it. Um, I ba I'm assuming that you use the texts as a, a primary baseline for this, for trying to figure out what the distribution was and, and how widespread it was. And tell us a little bit about that. What, what do the texts tell us about production, circulation, import, export, uh, et cetera? All right. Well, um, it is definitely true that we are, we are predominantly using the texts um, for our understanding of the ingredients used to make the beer, the process, most aspects of it. I mean, the one key thing that we're not getting, well, it's a kind of combination of texts and archaeology, is the actual vessels that we're using. So I guess that's one of the things that really sets our project apart from other efforts like this, is that we're actually trying to use the equipment, or at least, you know, similar equipment to what they would have used in Mesopotamia. So we're um, replicating uh, ceramic vessels. We have um, a potter, Brian Zimmerly, who works at the Oriental Institute Museum, who's made a bunch of replica vessels for us. So those were actually based on um, archaeological examples, so vessels that were excavated uh, in the Diyala region of Iraq by the Oriental Institute in the 1930s. And the, the key, of course, is that we don't have residue from these, so we don't actually know that they were used to produce beer. So we're, we're really making educated guesses, um, working backwards from the text. So let's talk a little bit about that. So the most famous text is the uh, hymn to Ninkasi, which is a 
uh, hymn and the preserved version that we have is from the early second millennium BC, but it probably uh, its origins probably reach back a good bit further. Um, and this is basically a praise poem to the goddess Ninkasis, goddess of beer, and the poem um, seems to describe successive steps in the brewing process. Um, opinions differ quite a lot about whether that's actually the case, whether we're seeing successive steps or just some sort of uh, random snippets, images from uh, the brewing process. But really, that's our only, really the only text that gives us that kind of view of brewing. Um, there are also, uh, from from the late 4th millennium B.C. onward, we have texts that give us information about uh, ingredients that were delivered to brewers. And then in some cases, we also get information about how much beer they actually produced with those ingredients. Um, uh, some of those same texts uh, give us information about different types of beer, and this actually changes through time. So in the uh, archaic text, the late 4th millennium uh, text, you have something like nine different types of beer. Unfortunately, we don't really understand what those different signs, those cuneiform signs, mean in terms of what those different types are. Then you move a little bit more forward in time, and you have a series of terms that seem to describe beer according to its color. So you have golden beers, um, sweet brown beer, dark beer, things like that. And then a little bit later in time, late in the third millennium, you have <clears throat> terms that seem to um, differentiate the beers based on the ingredients that were used to make them. So probably that has to do with the strength of the beers. So you have sort of three different levels of strength. Um, so we have this. This is just basic economic documents. These are documents produced by the palace and temple institutions, basically keeping track of inputs and outputs of grain, which they were um, very concerned with at all times. Um, you know, there are also myths that describe, for instance, the gods having banquets and um, they get in drunken debates and fights and things like that. Uh, <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, really thousands and thousands of texts that have to do with beer over this time period. I, I think we should just sort of step back for a second. I, this is this is marvelous, but step back for a second and and remind the and inform the listenership that a lot of these cuneiform records are basically inventory and transaction records of products. And, and obviously, you know this; you deal with this all the time. But of basically inventories, keeping track of what's moving back and forth, and um and 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 how trade is moving and who. Uh, who received what from whom, and uh, essentially inventories, uh, invoices, if you will, a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But uh, and we know a lot of that, obviously, and you you deal with it a whole lot. But what about methods of production? Are there guidelines for methods of production? Are there instructions? Are mm -hmm. there uh, brewing strategies? Tell us about that a little bit. No, I mean, unfortunately, the the Hymnton and Kasi is really the best evidence for that, and it. it does provide some very interesting information, um, which can be interpreted as basically passing through the brewing process. So, starting with the malting of barley, uh, and then through um, and the production of bapir or beer bread, which is a, a fundamental ingredient in Mesopotamian beer, and then onto the stage of mashing, and then fermentation and filtering, basically. But um, it requires quite a lot of interpretation. And unfortunately, other than that, uh, really the best thing we have are these 
these texts that give us information about basically the proportions of ingredients um, involved in the production of particular kinds of beer. Um, so we might know that um, this much uh, malt, this much malted barley, this much immer wheat, and this much bapir or beer bread um, were used to produce this much, a certain amount of beer. And basically that's as much as we get. So it's very... Uh, very sketchy detail on that kind of thing. We don't, for instance, know how much water was involved, which is pretty fundamental. Um, now, did you actually go through the cuneiform tablets themselves, or had they already been translated? No, I mean, we're basically using other people's um, translations of these. Uh, Chris Woods, who's a Sumerologist here at the Oriental Institute, is involved with the project, but we haven't been going back and doing um, new translations of things. Uh, so, for instance, Miguel Seville, who was a professor here, did a classic translation of the um, hymn to Ninkasi, so we're using that. But then a lot of people have um, disagreed with various parts of that over time, um, so we're trying to take all of this into account. I'm, we, we're not really trying all the different options. We're trying to take a kind of middle road um, in some of the debates. And we're going to take a short break right now and come back with our guest, uh, Mr. Tate Paulette, uh, and continue our discussion on, uh, what can we call it, Miller time in southern Mesopotamia or something like that. <laughs> and we'll be back after these words. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood. Hosted by Chris Efesiu, Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We are back. This is Joe Schuldenrein uh, in a very unique installment of our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We're basically talking about beer in the ancient Near East, and specifically in southern Mesopotamia, where the brewing industry and the distribution and consumption of beer was actually very, very extensive. And we have discussed the fact that in a conjunction with a lot of the cuneiform documents in southern Mesopotamia, many of which were simply inventories and invoices and records of transactions between merchants and uh, the nature of commerce moving up and down the Tigris-Euphrates and beyond. Um, our, our next guest, our present guest, rather, Tate Paulette, has actually been able to track the development of beer production in Mesopotamia and embarked on a very unique project trying to reconstruct how the beer was manufactured, produced, and uh, why don't we let him take over from here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how your project evolved and where you went with it? All right. Well, I, um, I came on pretty early, just after um, the project had started, so I don't actually know the very, very beginning, but... Um, uh, Pat Conway, who is the owner of Great Lakes Brewing Company in Cleveland, um, uh, is an alumnus of the University of Chicago, and he um, came to the Orino Institute and was interested in recreating an ancient uh, beer. And so basically, I mean, I wish I could say that this was a uh, we, we laid this out in a very clear kind of scientific plan. We're going to do these steps to prove or disprove these hypotheses. But really, it's been a much looser um, kind of process with a whole lot of back and forth with the brewery. So it started out with um, Pat and uh, his brewers would send us a, a long list of questions um, about the Mesopotamian brewing process, we would do our best to answer those questions, trying to be really upfront about all the gaps in our knowledge, which there are lots and lots of gaps in our knowledge of Mesopotamian but, brewing. Mm-hmm. But wait a minute. He was just interested uh, out of curiosity, or this was like one of his pet uh, pet projects or something? That he, or as a brewer, he wanted to get something uh to perfect, perhaps, or or to work on his on his uh, formulas, or how did he uh, how did he depict or portray his himself and his objectives? I think it was out of curiosity. I think that uh-huh. he was okay. at the Oriental Institute Museum one day and said, "Why are we not trying to make Mesopotamian beer?" I, uh, you know, <laughs> the way he talks about it, he says, "Well, how could we not be interested in this as brewers?" You know, the basically some of the earliest beer that we know about in the world. Yeah. So as far as I understand it, that's his perspective. <laughs> okay. Um, so you got onto the project, and, and basically in response to his curiosity, and uh, take us further. Okay. So basically, we've done. Uh, we started out with a lot of back and forth like that. Uh, they would send us questions. We would answer them. We would ask them questions. We also, of course, um, got Brian Zimmerly, the potter, involved very early. Um, and he, he works at the Oriental Institute. So basically, Mike Fisher and I, Mike is also an archaeologist, we went back and um, 
looked at the excavated material from the, the Diala um, from the database uh, here run by the Oriental Institute, and we started searching for possible analogs um, for the kinds of vessels that are mentioned in the text. So, in fact, there's quite a lot of information in all different kinds of texts about the equipment used in brewing. Um, it's often very sketchy info, um, but we know a good bit about the vessels. You know, they, they were typically ceramic, but they could also be metal or sometimes made out of reed. Um, and there's one particularly uh, iconic vessel that uh, has a hole in the bottom. So it's the Gakul uh, vessel. And so that was kind of our first um, inroad as we started looking simply for vessels that have holes um, in the bottom because this is a fundamental part of the brewing process. Um, and so we've really, we've we basically picked out a kind of suite of vessels that made sense given what we know about the brewing process. You know, we would have loved to have, um, like I said earlier, had the kind of residue analysis that would tell us exactly this vessel type was used in brewing, but we, we just don't have that at the moment. So uh, we're uh, really making educated guesses. So we, we had Brian uh, Zimmerly make um, a series of these vessels. We took those to Cleveland. Um, I guess I've made three or four trips to Cleveland now, and other people from the project have made trips with me and separately. Um, and Pat Conway and the brewers have made several trips here. Um, and we email all the time. I mean, at least every other day. So it's been uh, something like a year and a half of really constant communication. So they all do some experiments at the brewery. They might have a problem with one particular stage of the process. They'll email us or call us and say, wait a minute, do you know anything about this from the text or from the archaeology? And we'll do our best to answer it. Um, so it's, that, that's been the way it's worked, at least. So uh, the vessels themselves, the uh, ones that you actually talk about with the holes on the bottom, mm -hmm. were those originally collected in uh, – you had talked about the Diala survey. Were those collected during that survey or, and, and their identifations were left up in the air? They were, they, the shape or the morphology of the vessels uh, wasn't clearly connected to beer and you just sort of picked it out? Or, or how yeah, I don't believe that these were actually cited as beer vessels. There has been a lot of discussion – by archaeologists working in the region about this particular type of vessel. Right. Um, they're basically really large um, vessels with a hole either straight in the bottom or sort of on the bottom side. Um, and so that has been recognized for a while. So we felt relatively confident with that part. Um, and the other, basically the other key vessel that's always paired with that one is usually translated as a collecting vessel. Uh, right which sits underneath it. So basically when the beer drips through that hole, um, it's the vessel that collects it. And we really did have to just choose one that made sense in terms of size and shape um, and pairing it with that uh, those other vessels. So how do you make the connection between the vessel with the hole and the continuation of the procedure, I guess the uh, brewing procedure? How did, that, how did that start? I mean, how do you make that connection so functionally? How does that fit into the process? Like, how do we understand that? Uh, how that do you hole? make the jump? How do you basically? How do you make a connection between the style and shape of the vessel and its actual function? Yeah, well, it's. Um, I mean, it's really based on the text. Um, okay. Because this is really just 
it's the, it's kind of the vessel that stands for brewing in Mesopotamia. Actually, this pair of vessels. So they like to talk, for instance, about the pleasant sound that these vessels make. They say double double to each other, which is, I guess the sound of dripping liquid uh, moving from one to the other. And I mean, there is there's a lot of disagreement about exactly. Um, where what that what's happening in the process at that point? I think a lot of people have argued that during the fermentation, the beer is actually dripping down slowly from one uh-huh. vessel to the other. Um, and we've really worked, we've talked with the brewers a lot about this, and we just couldn't under, figure out a way that that made sense in terms of the brewing process. And so in the end, we ended up um, plugging up the hole during fermentation, uh, and then when the when the fermentation is finished or near finished, we unplug it and let it sort of rush out into the vessel underneath, which I think also makes sense with the pleasant sound. You know, it's the sound of beer that's finished. So, um, and this is a systematic uh, learning exercise. I mean, you go from recognizing the shape and the form and the function of the vessel, and then I guess you try to reconstruct the entire process based on connections between vessels, documentation from the cuneiform records, um, and and the the uh, signal record that you do have for it. Um, which is the ode to the gods on beer, and then then where do you go? Then how does how does uh, how does it take on a life of its own? How is your interaction with the Cleveland people and the brewery? How does how has that moved, and and what what's the history of that? All right. Well, um, I guess that what we've been working towards with them is having some actual tasting events where we let people try what we've made. So that's coming up in August. So lately, we've been really trying to. Um, move towards having a beer that's drinkable that people, you know, will actually want to to try. Um, so so what was your what was your first product like? What what was it like? <laughs> well, so uh, the earliest ones were very sour and had a lot of what we'd call off flavors uh, in them, um, which is really ex- to be expected. I mean, there. are there are a lot of bacteria um, involved alongside the yeast, so we have a lot of um, different things going on during the fermentation, um, which is not necessarily bad, but uh, I think it was a really harsh sourness. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to try any of the versions so far. (laughs) What happens is I go to Cleveland, spend a few days there during the actual brewing, and then I have to leave, and then several days later they can actually try it, so they'll tell me how it tastes. So um, what kind of... But do you uh, what kind of input do you have into it in terms of the um, the procedure? You're just sort of tasting it, or are you giving them additional guidance from some additional documentation that you have? Yeah, I mean, usually it's that they you know if they they tasted it and said, well, we still have some problems with this. Do you have any other ideas about you know from the text or something that might help us deal with this problem? And um, at least in the the in the brewing process that we've recreated, I think that the real problems are coming in um, via the batir or this beer bread. So it's all it's, it's we've worked a lot on uh, how we deal with that. Um, basically, the issue there is that people disagree um, quite a lot about exactly what this is. Um, for a long time, it's been understood as a kind of bread that was somehow involved in the production of this beer. Um, lately, some people have raised doubts about that. Some people think it's not a bread. It's some kind of barley product, but um, not a bread. But in any case, uh, there's still disagreement about where it fits into the process. So, for instance, um, in the 90s, late 80s, there was a 
a project. Um, the Oriental Institute joined up with Anchor Brewing to make a Mesopotamian beer, and they they didn't do it the same way we're doing it. They didn't make ceramic vessels. They didn't try to use the original equipment. They did it on their normal brewing equipment. But they made um, a version of this bapir or beer bread that was kind of like biscotti. It was a twice-baked kind of bread that they crumbled in during the mash, which is when they were heating the mash. They crumbled ah, it okay. So that was an additional phase in the mash process. So that it was adding certain kinds of flavors, I think, right. like sort of caramelly flavors and things. Whereas what we've been trying to show um, is that the bapir could instead be basically the vehicle for the yeast. So... It comes in after mashing. So you mash, then you cool that down, and then you're adding the bapir to initiate fermentation. So that's really about what we've been struggling with is how to get that to work well. Um, and because I think that one of the issues is that when you – well, in order to, to allow enough yeast to survive the baking process when you're baking this bread um, – you have to bake it at a really low temperature, really low, you know, something like 100 or 110 degrees uh, uh-huh. Fahrenheit. And so, of course, when you're baking it that low, a lot of bacteria of all kinds are also surviving kind of on the husks of the barley and things. And so then when you're adding this uh, this bread to the cooled down wort, um, you're introducing all kinds of other things that are producing a lot of these sour flavors. Does that make sense? So, yeah, yeah, no, it does. My, my question actually... Uh, you're leading into something very intriguing. So let's uh, let's look at your perspective and the guys in Cleveland, mm-hmm. and you are coming up with a certain protocol for, let's say, for lack of a better word, word uh, beer production. And I don't know how much you knew about beer production other than drinking it when you're in college and getting crazy. <laughs> but, but my question is, uh, you're providing them with the... Oh information that the records produce. Now, these guys are obviously experienced brewers. That's mm-hmm. their business. Are they seeing similarities in the step-by-step production process from what you're telling them and, and how they're actually brewing contemporary beer? Yes, I think, um, I mean, they, they also have a lot of questions about it, you know, things that don't make sense to them. Um, because really, modern brewing has become pretty standardized. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the real strengths of doing the project in this way is that it's not just um, a bunch of archaeologists and philologists trying to make beer, um, but we're relying on people who are really very familiar with these ingredients and with the process and that kind of thing. But, of course, they are coming from the perspective of um, modern brewing practices. So um, I feel like, you know, I've... I've become interested um, lately in traditional African brewing, for instance, which to me seems like in many ways a much better analog for the kind of thing we're doing. And so, you know, I'll I'll go do some research and I'll pass along articles to the brewers. To mm-hmm. you know, so my impression is that they've enjoyed the kind of opening up of their perspective to sort of the possibilities beyond um, what we understand as the normal brewing process. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. I, I guess the real interesting question is, do you see generically the same pattern of production that is being followed today? I mean, is it setting the guidelines for uh, the sequence of events that goes from uh, procuring the hops, procuring the uh, the barley, and then uh, 
getting into the production of uh, contemporary beer. Well, so I should mention right away, there are no hops. That's one of the, the no, really I'm, big No, I, I kept saying hops. No, I'm, let's go back to barley. But I'm <laughs> yeah. saying the procurement of oh, yeah. barley, which we know know is such an early domesticate, and then the uh, procurement of the barley and then processing it and following the same general steps to get from the barley to the beer. Is it the same uh, in, in general? Well, I think it's a very difficult question because of issues of translation that... These, ah, when these texts okay. are translated, often so much has to be filled in um, that I think uh, a lot of the time our knowledge of you know brewing today seeps into those translations kind of inevitably. And so yes. when you're using the same words like malt or um, wort or mash and things like that, it's kind, you're kind of potentially forcing it into the the pattern that we know today. So it's a it's a tough thing and I think that everyone who who deals with this subject is you know struggling very hard to keep that kind of thing out, but I think that it's um, difficult to avoid, probably. Sure, it's it's a linguistic issue, and, and yeah. you're projecting contempt, contemporary ideas, in a sense, on an ancient language, which conceptually could have been organized differently. We'll be back in a minute. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll return with our special guest, Mr. Tate Paulette, and continue our discussion on brewing beer in ancient Mesopotamia. We'll be back. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleiner interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. 
We are back and we're discussing ancient beer production and a very unique effort by a contemporary brewer to collaborate with archaeologists at the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago who are studying ancient grains and ancient beer, in fact, to look at parallels and chronologies, uh, not chronologies, but directions in beer production that are reflected today versus how that was done 5,000 years ago when the earliest beers were actually produced and distributed. So my question to you now, Tate, uh, having uh, looked at, at these processes and established some connections between the archaeological record um, the brewing process, the connection between the vessels that uh, whose function we didn't really know and then we are starting to pick up on because of the, uh, the cuneiform records that are showing that some types of vessels were clearly associated with the brewing process. Now let's go into the question of taste. Now, you are in the process right now of refining the procedure, the processing procedure, the uh, fermentation, and you're trying to look at the end product. So the end product right now, what is it like? What does it taste like? Unfortunately, like I said earlier, I haven't actually gotten to taste any of it, which is None frustrating. Of it. Okay. Has anybody but, tasted oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I get reports of it. I mean, like I mentioned, it's mainly um, a stronger uh, element of sourness. Um, we've also been experimenting with different additional flavorings. So, um, and again, I haven't really mentioned this, but the texts tell us very little about any of these kind of additional flavorings, the equivalent of like hops in our in our own modern beers, um, right. they really just give us information out of the most basic ingredients. So what we've had to do is we've we've basically just compiled a list of ingredients that we know were available in Mesopotamia and given that to the brewers and said, you know, what makes sense to you to use in this process? And so they've been trying. You know, some things that we're more familiar with, like coriander, um, cardamom, also fennel, uh, juniper berries, um, and dates. Dates are the one fundamental thing we know uh, was added to the beer, dates or date syrup. Um, so um, we've also, you know, got hints of that in the flavor, but um, usually what they've emailed me is it's a it's the sourness that's really been dominating, and so they've been trying to reduce the unpleasant side of that. Um, and in fact, I mean, Sour beers are becoming very pop, very popular at the moment. So, um, you know, modern palates have been broadening like crazy um, in recent years, and I think that people will be perfectly happy with that side of it. Uh, so, so the question becomes really: I mean, you just put your finger on it. Uh, what about the possibility that the palate of the Sumerian 5,000 years ago was significantly different from the one of today, and that the process that you've described and reconstructed is really very close to what happened back then, and that very, very strong sour quality was actually preferred by the people. Yeah, it's a tough question. I, I don't really know how to get around it. Um, because, of course, we're, you know, we're doing both things at the same time. We're trying to fill in gaps in the process, the brewing process, you know, um, things that we just don't have information about by um, refining the taste, you know, and so it's tough uh, to sort of, you know, refining the taste to suit our 
our modern palate to some degree. I mean, they don't, for instance, talk about their beers as sour. They do talk about them as sweet. So that's interesting. Ah, okay. um, so it may be that they were, well, we know that they added a good bit of date syrup and things like that. So they may have been sweetening the beer um, you know, during the process or actually after fermentation or something like that. Um, so that that is at least an interesting side to this, but of course they may just not have recognized that sourness as a, you know, that might be beer flavor to them basically. So they didn't need to mention it, you know. Well, well, you know, a logical outcome of any of this is uh, to have you go back into the cuneiform records and see if there is any documentation of a bad batch of beer. There is actually. And, I think that yeah? there would probably be more examples if we went back and searched, but I. There is, I can, I, I wish I knew exactly what it said, but an example from a letter or something where someone's complaining about the, um, I think the word is soured, but it might just be a translation issue, soured batch of beer, something like that. Right. Um, so there, I think there might be some interesting info like that. I mean, really it's this kind of thing that, that I think is one of the greatest benefits of the project is just getting us to ask these questions that we might not have thought to ask before, you know, to go search for evidence for something like that, that just wouldn't really have occurred to us before. I mean, that's, I feel like that's happened over and over throughout the process so far, just in this year and a half or so. So I think it's a real benefit. Yeah, no, it, it, it sounds like that. That's a very major possibility, obviously, as you go and proceed in your investigations and, and your, uh, explorations of the cuneiform records, you're, you're going to start to get a focus on what kind of questions you want to really get to. And I think that one is is a major one that you, you might be able to follow through on. Um, and again, I think, you know, the palettes having changed over the time, I mean, we know from contemporary ethnology and ethnography that the tastes that we like today are tastes that even contemporary populations who have uh, who have been indigenous and, and survived in in some some isolation they just uh, can't deal with them and they have their own uh, they have their own appetites they have their own palates that uh, reflect both uh, liquids and and the food itself and and that can be very 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 specific to a certain population so we know that um, and you may be able to get a handle on that I suppose eventually yeah I mean, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I just brought up an interesting point to me is that I should emphasize that we're talking about a really long period of time that we're drawing this evidence from, so something like 3200 to 1600 B.C. Of so, of course, of course, we can expect that, that their tastes and things would have changed significantly over that period, as could the basic brewing process. So, you know, at the moment, we're at that point of where we're just having to take the evidence where we can get it and piece together, you know, whatever we can. But I really think that a goal for the future has to be understanding change over this period. Sure. What about region, regional preferences? Do you have, a, is there any evidence that there were regional preferences in the beers like we have here in, in this country and in many other parts of the world? Well, um, I, I don't know of any evidence from the text at the moment. There has been a, um, a project uh, working at the site of Telbazi uh, in sort of north-central Syria, um, which is a late Bronze Age site, so a little bit later than the stuff we're working with, where they have um, they found quite a lot of good archaeological evidence for brewing, or at least that for pots that were used with beer somehow. And they, I believe, are arguing that maybe they're seeing a slightly different brewing process than what we're seeing in the cuneiform 
documents from southern Mesopotamia and from a bit earlier, um, where they, are, they basically see no evidence for this bapir or beer bread playing any role. So they're arguing for just spontaneous fermentation from airborne yeasts and things. And so if, if we had regional differences like that, um, it could certainly lead to different kinds of flavors. I mean, it could also just be a sort of household level versus institutional level issue because what they've excavated are basically a collection of houses, whereas most of the texts that we're getting from southern Mesopotamia are telling us about institutional beer production. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, let me ask you this. Where is your uh, research going? I mean, it's obviously an open-ended kind of investigation, each as it, as it is with science and research everywhere. One development and discovery leads to a new series of questions. Where do you stand on this research, and how do you see it going forward? Well, from my perspective, you know, I'm interested in the archaeological side of it primarily, and Mike Fisher, who I've been working with on this, that the two of us would really like to push forward with this issue of doing a better job of identifying beer archaeologically. And what we've already been trying to do is to start, as I've sort of talked about already, we've tried to use the text to start um, sort of reconstructing a hypothetical brewing assemblage or something, you know, an assemblage of um, equipment, installations, um, ingredients, and things that we might expect to find together in a brewing context, archaeologically. Sure, sure. So to take that back to um, old excavation reports and things um, and look for, you know, just go back and try to put things back into context and look for it, sort of patterns of potential brewing. So that's sort of one dimension. I think our other um, sort of path forward is to try to do some residue analysis on things in museums. Um, there are things from those Diala sites uh, in the Oriental Institute Museum. We would love to go and see if we can get any kind of residues from those so we could get some kind of sense for the different types of um, ceramic vessels that were actually used for brewing. So from my perspective, that's um, an interesting way forward. So you would uh, have, knowing now what the vessels are like and what they signal in terms of their shape and and form, you could go back and sort of retrofit those observations and say, you know what, in this collection, which was, let's assume, collected 30, 40, 50 years ago, we have a vessel that just might have some residue because it, fi- it fits the description of a vessel that did actually produce that type of residue. So you can re-examine these with uh, a more informed eye, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I definitely could, don't think I can say that the, uh, the experiments we've done have in any way at all proven that these vessels that we've replicated were the ones that were used for brewing. Um, but I do think that it's really given us a sense for the degree to which these vessels would have worked. And we've um, we've noticed a lot of points in the process where things like strainers and things um, would be necessary that we might not have thought about before. So I, I wish it – I don't think it's a very straightforward thing that we can now say, well, these vessels clearly worked for brewing. This is what they used, and we can go search for those. You know, it's, it's a much more back-and-forth kind of kind of thing. If you look at the chronology of of your excavation, not your excavation, but your interpretations, and you sort of identified a fixed period basically ending at 1600 BC, what is the next oldest systematic brewing operations that we know of in the archaeological record or even in the written record? Well, 
I mean, in basically contemporary Egypt, there was a, a huge amount of beer brewing going on. So from just about as early as in Mesopotamia, um, there and there's actually some better archaeological evidence for breweries in Egypt, um, which is one of the strange things. You know, when we look at the Mesopotamian archaeological record, we we kind of are looking for these sort of large-scale breweries that we that we think. So maybe we're thinking of something like what's for, what we have from Egypt or something. Uh, these kind of modular breweries that they appear, for instance, in little um, in little models where you actually see the the workers in their brewery doing the different steps in the process. And so, you know, maybe we're looking for that kind of thing in Mesopotamia, and, and maybe that's not the right kind of thing to be looking for. Um, that makes sense. Well, you would be, you would, uh, you know, and again, in a greater sense, obviously, in in that part of the world, which uh, we know as the cradle, or we call the cradle of civilization, we're looking for evidence of analogous means of production, trade, similar ideas, produ- products that reflect interaction between the various groups and civilizations that populated the general region. And I would assume that uh, the exchange and production of beer uh, would fall along those same lines. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And and in fact, I think not everyone agrees with this, but um, ancient Egyptian beer also um, involved a kind of bread in the process, which um, to me, the process seems very similar to what we see hints of in Mesopotamia. Um, so I think that, that you could be exactly right about that. Yeah. And, and in that sense, in, in addition to just being a very interesting exercise, it has a tremendous amount of potential in terms of informing how contemporary means of production and distribution are reflected and can be uh, laid along a historic and developmental line for other products and looking at how uh, various elements, not just uh, work, but also recreation, if you will, and, and, and leisure time, how important that was to the life cycle of the various populations in, uh, in Western civilization and beyond, I guess. Yeah, sure. And so where, you, where do you see your research uh, ending up or moving or how do you see it uh, progressing? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess... You know, again, on the archaeological side, I feel like if we could start doing a better job of identifying beer archaeologically, we have really the potential to transform our understanding of the role of beer in the society. I mean, it's it's really something that we don't have a great understanding of so far, even though it appears in so many of these texts and things. For instance, the texts tell us very little about household-level production of beer, um, but we, it was almost certainly going on on a large scale, and I think archaeology, for instance, could completely transform our understanding of that side of things. Another thing is taverns, for instance. They appear periodically um, in the texts. We know that they were a, a, rel- a relatively regular thing in the urban landscape, um, but we, we really don't know what they look like archaeologically. I think that archaeology gives us the chance to really put these things in space, to know where the taverns were in the cities um, and, and, you know, how they were distributed in neighborhoods and things like that. So I think there's a lot of potential. And on that note, I think we're going to have to end our very fascinating uh, discussion with uh, Mr. Tate Paulette, who is a doctoral candidate at the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago and is undertaking some very creative and imaginative research on the emergence 
of means of production and consumption and distribution of beer in ancient Mesopotamia. And it's about time to get a brew. So uh, I want to say a good evening to all of you. And thank you so much, Mr. Paulette, for participating in our uh, program. And we will see you all next week. Goodbye. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.